Hi, this is Pastor Ryan Spooner. I'm so glad that you're listening to our sermon podcast. I hope it's a blessing. If you live in the area, or even if you don't, we would love to have you join us on a Sunday morning. We meet at 10.30 a.m. at the Millworks in Willington, Connecticut, 156 River Road. Also, if you'd ever like to help support our church financially, we would be extremely grateful. You can donate through our website, stpaulschurchct.org. Thanks. All right. So as Keith said, we are starting a new sermon series today, uh, which I've titled Jesus and the Women of Faith. And what we're going to be doing is studying Jesus's interactions with women in the Gospels and um, considering what the significance of those are. And the fact that I can do a sermon series on this subject is in itself significant. I want us to recognize this because in Jesus' day, it was generally considered inappropriate for a man to speak to a woman in public who was not part of his family. And it was especially considered inappropriate for a rabbi to do that, a Jewish rabbi, because rabbis, their role was supposed to be to teach the scriptures. But women were generally considered to not be people who should be studying the scriptures, studying the Torah. Uh, That role was for men. I found a very interesting article on something called the Jewish Women's Archive. And it summarizes the history of Jewish attitude towards women studying Torah, studying the scriptures. And the summary statement on this website uh, says this. The obligation of Torah study is one of the most important Jewish commandments, but women have long been excluded from this important realm. Although debates existed about whether women were exempted or excluded from Torah study, Rabbi Eliezer's restrictive opinion was widely accepted and influenced subsequent halakhic rulings. Uh, A halakhic ruling is just a ruling about how to interpret the Jewish law. So the conclusion of the Jewish Women's Archive was that until the late 18th century, the dominant opinion of Jewish rabbis was that women were not supposed to study or teach Torah. That was the domain of men. Now you might wonder, well, who is this Rabbi Eliezer guy who is so influential? Well, he lived uh, after Jesus, not too long after Jesus, uh, the late first and early second centuries. Very influential rabbi. And he said, anyone who teaches his daughter Torah teaches her tiflut. Now, what is tiflut? Well, it has two definitions, and both of them are probably intended here. Tiflut can either mean sexual license, lewdness, or nonsense, vanity, meaninglessness. So according to Rabbi Eliezer, if you taught Torah to your daughter, you were either doing something pointless or something that might lead her to sexual sin. Now you might be going, what, what? Why Why that? Well, the article explains, it was feared that the woman in learning Torah would learn how to outwit her husband and sin in secret. So there was this general attitude that, like, 
if you give knowledge and wisdom, you bring empowerment, and then with empowerment comes shrewdness, which frees the woman or empowers her to sin, okay? I think Rabbi, Rabbi Eliezer might have been a little insecure, you know? He might have benefited from a visit to the therapist. Um, so, in his view, women were so hopelessly corrupted that if they were taught Torah, they could only misuse it and twist it to sin and then to humiliate their husbands. Um, another source, the Jerusalem Talmud. So this is a collection of interpretations of Jewish oral tradition compiled around 500 AD. And this cites Rabbi Eliezer, and then it adds, a woman's wisdom is solely in the spindle which means that a woman's wisdom, she shouldn't really be learning about Torah. She should know how to sew, right? That should be where her wisdom is. And then it also adds the words of the Torah should be burned rather than entrusted to women. And then predating all of this is something called the Sifra, which was a commentary on the book of Deuteronomy. And now, <laughs> the book of Deuteronomy says that you should teach the commands of the law to your children. So when the Sifra commented on that verse, it said, it clarified, well, you shall teach your sons and not your daughters. So this was the prevailing attitude during Jesus' time. Women are not supposed to be students of Torah. They certainly aren't supposed to be teachers of the Torah. Their wisdom should be in the spindle. And men who aren't closely related to them should not even be talking to them in public. And if you read the Gospels with this in mind, Jesus is radically, beautifully, shockingly countercultural. So we're going to look at one example today. Uh, this week's passage is Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 38. So if you want to follow along, Luke 10, 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he, had, he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you're worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. So Jesus and his disciples were welcomed into the home of a woman named Martha, who lived there with her sister Mary. Uh, this was probably not the first time that Jesus went into this home. Uh, we know from the Gospel of John that this was a family that Jesus was close to. Uh, Mary and Martha were siblings of a man named Lazarus who, uh, in the Gospel of John, this is the Lazarus who Jesus goes to his tomb after he's died, and he weeps over the tomb, and then he miraculously raises him to life four days after his death. 
And when Lazarus gets sick, Mary and Martha, they, they send a message to Jesus and they say, Lord, the one you love is sick. The one you love, right? So this is a family that is close to Jesus. They love him and he loves them. And not just in that general sense of, you know, oh, Jesus loves everybody, but like he's got a real connection with this family. And on this day, Mary and Martha's love for Jesus expresses itself in different ways. Martha gets to work. As anyone who's ever hosted before knows, if 13 people show up at your house, there is a lot of work to do. You know, it's hard enough now with all of our modern conveniences, but imagine what it must have been like then in the days before running water or electricity or pizza or takeout, right? So Martha was probably trying to prepare a meal, to offer water, maybe to slaughter an animal, build a fire. She was trying to be hospitable for 13 people, including one of whom that she regarded as Lord. So someone who she would really want to honor, right? And so she was frantic. Luke says that she was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. But her sister Mary, on the other hand, she isn't worried about any of that. Instead of following Martha into the kitchen, she joins in with the guys. And it says that she sits at Jesus' feet. And that's significant because that was the posture that a disciple would take with a rabbi. It's a bit like saying she took a desk in the classroom. So Martha has been left to do all the work by herself. And she's annoyed. And come on, I don't blame her. How could we blame her, right? And not only is she annoyed with her sister, her annoyance spills over to Jesus, too. Because Jesus is tolerating her sister's irresponsibility. And so she confronts Jesus. She confronts the one who she calls Lord. She says, Lord, don't you care? that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself. Tell her to help me. You know, who among us hasn't felt like Martha at some point? Okay. Lord, would you get that person's attention and tell them to change? Force them to change? Please? I like Martha. I understand where she's coming from. But Jesus responds with gentle correction. He's very gentle. Right? He's, he says, Martha, well, let's point out, okay, he doesn't say, Martha, how dare you call me Lord and then tell me what to do? Right? He doesn't say that. He says, oh, Martha, Martha, I know you're worried about many things. I know you want everything to be just right. But everything you're worried about, it's not really necessary. There's only one thing that's truly necessary. And it's what Mary's doing right now. And so I'm not going to tell her to stop. I'm not going to take that from her. So what should we learn from Jesus' response to Martha? I've got three lessons. It's going to be a quick message today. First... Jesus, breaking cultural norms, welcomed women into discipleship and study. 
When Mary takes her place at Jesus' feet, he doesn't say, Mary, Mary, a woman's wisdom should be in the spindle. He doesn't say, "Mm -mm, anyone who teaches his daughter Torah teaches her tiflots. He doesn't say, come on, Mary, your place is in the kitchen with Martha, right? He says, no, this will not be taken from her. When we know the cultural context of this story, it hits different. And we can really appreciate its countercultural power. This is telling us that Jesus invites women into the same kind of discipleship as men. Now, I can understand someone might say, well, I mean, then why did Jesus just pick 12 male disciples? It's a good, good question. Well, here's a couple things to consider before you draw conclusions from that. So, number one, the main 12 disciples that Jesus picked, okay, he did have other disciples. But the main 12 that he picked, these people were supposed to be his traveling companions, right? The people that he was with day and night. And so it would make sense that when Jesus is picking traveling companions, he would pick other men, right? Both for propriety's sake and the appearance of propriety, right? Second, we should remember that Jesus lived his life with an aim towards fulfilling the scriptures. He talks about that all the time, right? I'm fulfilling the scriptures. And one of the ways that Jesus fulfills the scriptures is by repeating aspects of Israel's history in his own life. It's a sign that he is a fulfillment of everything that's gone before. And so picking 12 male disciples is a fulfillment of Israel's history because if you know Israel's history, you know that Israel's descended 12 tribes, right, from 12 brothers, 12 sons of Israel, also known as Jacob. So in picking 12 male disciples, Jesus also fulfills the the scriptures. And then third, we should recognize that Jesus picked these 12 disciples for the task of proclaiming his message to Israel, right? And if the culture of Israel was one in which women were generally not accepted as teachers, preachers, people who study Torah, it would make sense for him to appoint men to that task because if he calls any women to that particular role, they're going to have a hard time gaining a hearing, right? So you've got to keep all these things in mind before drawing too sharp of a conclusion. And I would argue, okay, if we regard Jesus as our rabbi, doesn't it make sense to give special attention to the things that he does that are different from other rabbis? It was normal for a rabbi to only pick male disciples. What was abnormal was for a woman to sit at a rabbi's feet and then for the rabbi to say, this won't be taken from her. You have to give special attention to the abnormal stuff, right? Because otherwise, if we're, just, if we're just paying attention to the same things that Jesus did that other rabbis did, well, you might as well just, you know, study those other rabbis. Pay special attention to the things that are different. Okay. So what else can we learn from Jesus' response to Martha? Number two, even more than our service, Jesus wants our friendship. Even more than our service, 
Jesus wants our friendship. When you go to a restaurant, you expect service. And if you go there and the wait staff just wants to hang out, you're going to be frustrated, right? But if you go to visit a friend and they spend the whole time in the kitchen preparing you a great meal but never talk to you, aren't you going to be disappointed? Right? No matter how good that meal is? Does Jesus want to rate, relate to us more the way a restaurant patron relates to waitstaff or the way that a friend relates to a friend? What does this story tell us? More the way a friend relates to a friend, right? Martha, in this moment, is relating to Jesus more like waitstaff. Mary, more like a friend. And Jesus says, Mary has chosen what is better. Now, I can imagine what it must have been like when Jesus showed up at the door. You know, I can imagine Martha saying, oh my goodness, he's here, and then rushing to the kitchen. And Mary saying, oh my goodness, he's here, and rushing to Jesus. Martha rushes off so that she can wait on Jesus. Mary stays so that she can be with Jesus. And Jesus says, Mary has done the one thing that's needed. If Jesus wanted us to relate to him like waitstaff, he would have said that Martha had done the one thing that was needed. But the affirmation of Mary tells us something about what Jesus wants most from us. Relationship. Friendship, joy in his presence. Now, I want to be clear about something. Okay, this doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't want us to serve him or to serve others. And that's something that we've been hammering on a lot here lately. You might remember the passage where uh, James and John request to be greatest in the kingdom. And what does Jesus say? If you want to be greatest, you've got to be a servant, Right? What did Jesus do uh, at the Last Supper? He, he washed the disciples' feet. He adopted the posture of a servant. And then he said, if you guys you know, want to follow me, you've got to be willing to do this kind of thing for each other. You've got to be willing to be servants. The Apostle Paul says, we are God's masterpieces created in Jesus to do what? To do good works. And James writes that the kind of religion that God considers pure is the kind that looks after widows and orphans in their distress. Right? So service, good deeds, these matter to God. We're called to this. Right? So I'm not trying to throw all that out. But God doesn't just want to be our taskmaster. Even more than that, he wants to be our friend. Now, I can imagine some of us getting a little uncomfortable there. Friend? What, Jesus is my buddy? He's my Lord. He's my king. Yes, he is your Lord and your king, but he should also be your friend. He wants to be your confidant, your companion, your joy, your peace. Knowing Jesus in this way, this is the one thing that is truly needed. This is the one thing that all our service and our good works is supposed to flow out of. The recognition that Christ loves us and wants to be with us, that he takes joy in our presence and wants us to take joy in his, right? 
Now, some people get disgusted by what they see as hollow religion. They might see Christians, you know, praying, reading the Bible, going to church, singing worship songs, but not caring about justice, right? And some people get so disgusted when they see that kind of hypocrisy that they, they kind of swing to the opposite extreme and they say, you know, all that religious practice stuff, it doesn't matter at all. Who cares about that? All that matters is doing stuff like, you know, feeding the hungry, standing up for the oppressed, working to reduce discrimination, sheltering the homeless, helping the poor. That we, we just need to do that stuff. We don't need to worry about, like, going to church or praying or any of that. Just, it doesn't really matter. And of course, God wants us to do all those kinds of things. But he wants our good deeds to flow out of friendship with him, which requires making space in our lives to just enjoy being in God's presence, right? Through things like prayer and meditation and studying scripture and, and gathering together in worship, right? What is worship but standing in the presence of God, enjoying God and enjoying God, enjoying you? I think when we try to do good deeds and work for justice in the world without that foundation of friendship with God, without that foundation of joy in his presence, we run the risk of becoming very self-righteous and judgmental in our activism. We have a tendency to become like Martha in this story, right? Judging others for not doing what we think they should be doing and getting set off when people aren't, aren't doing those things. And in that judgmentalism, we can actually end up doing more harm than good. You know, it's possible to be very passionate about justice and good works, but in a way where you kind of become an insufferable person. In a way where even people who are on your side feel attacked and discouraged. But when we have the one thing that is truly needed, friendship with God, joy in his presence, that helps our work for justice, our activism, to be soaked in this grace and kindness, where our activism becomes an invitation rather than an attack. And then one more lesson I think we should learn is the value of presence in our relationships. Jesus says that Mary has done the one thing that is needed, and what has she done? She hasn't brought him food. She hasn't repaired his sandals or patched his robe. She hasn't given him an expensive gift. She's just enjoyed his presence and given him her attention. And Jesus says, that's the, that's the one thing that's really needed. So here's where I want to go with this. Do we realize the gift that we give another person when we do for them what Mary did for Jesus? When we just give them the gift of being in their presence and appreciating their presence. When we give them the gift of listening to them, really listening, 
When we do that, we offer something that every human being made in the image of God longs for. Don't underestimate the value of just showing up and being present. Don't underestimate the value of asking good questions and listening to the answers, really listening. Don't underestimate the value of making an effort to care, even when there's just a little part of you that actually does. Whether that's at church or at the dinner table or at a family reunion. Some people think that their house has to be spotless and they have to be able to prepare a gourmet meal before they can be hospitable, before they could invite someone over. But that's not true, right? because the most important part of hospitality is that ability to just be present to somebody else. Most of us, well, let me ask you, would you rather have sandwiches in a messy house with someone that you really make a connection with or a fancy meal in a pristine house with someone that you don't connect with, right? For me, that's a no-brainer, right? I want the first one. I want the connection. I'm going to leave that meal of sandwiches in a messy house feeling a lot better when I've had a soul-to-soul connection with another person, when I feel heard and listened to, right? Than if I've had, like, this really great fancy meal but haven't had that connection. Most people are not longing for someone to wait on them or to impress them with some amazing display of talent. They, they just want to feel seen and heard and appreciated. So I want to close with the invitation. Recognize the value of presence. Recognize the gift that you have to offer through presence. And look for opportunities to give it. Amen? Amen. Lord, we thank you that you say this is the one thing that is needed to find joy in your presence, to have friendship with you. And Lord, I pray that you'd help each one of us to experience that. I know that there are times where we can want that and feel like we're talking to the air. But Lord, if any of us are in that that situation, Lord, I pray that you'd reveal yourself. I pray that you would make yourself known to us. Help us to experience the reality of your presence with us, even now. Lord, help us to learn how to practice that one thing that is needed. In Jesus' name, amen.